0: When I was in school and learning about U.S. history, one phrase that was used to describe the many different cultures and nations of the people who made their way to the colonies and mingled together was melting pot. This episode isn't about the American melting pot, but a completely different one. Azerbaijan is a country whose own people will describe it as multicultural. Over the centuries, the, the Caucasus region had played host to a number of different people and rulers, From the ancient Scythians to the Soviet Union. Azerbaijan has seen it all. We may not be able to see it all either in this single episode, but we're going to try. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that dwells into many different cultures and nations of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Healthline talks about acne, and it says it is caused by a number of factors, including genetics, bacteria, and underlying inflammation, and the overproduction of sebum, an oily secretion made by the sebaceous glands of the skin. Based on recent scientific studies, CBD oil may help treat acne due to its anti-inflammatory properties and ability to reduce sebum production. So if you'd like to try CBD to treat acne, contact TheTailoredHemp.com. Now, on with the show. Azerbaijan officially is the Republic of Azerbaijan and is located in Eastern Europe and it's on the edge of western Asia. It's part of the Caucasus region and is bound by the Caspian Sea to the east, Russia to the north, Georgia to the northwest, Armenia and Turkey to the west, and Iran to the south. Azerbaijan's name comes from the Persian words "azer," which means fire, and bagan, which means protector. The name that was first applied in ancient times to this area is around Baku, Azerbaijan's current capital. Here, rich deposits of natural gas and oil resting close to the surface meant that in places, the soil was actually flammable. That's amazing. A temple was built to honor what the people considered to be the powerful forces in play, and many came on pilgrimage to see the wonders of the that the site offered. Kingdoms rose and fell throughout the centuries as competing empires and cultures vied for the dominance and influence. The current country, its people, language, religion, and culture are a result of a long evolution that reflects that history. Finally gaining independence in 1991, the young nation was immediately faced with immense hurdles, both economic and territorial, that continue to affect its foreign and domestic politics. Three physical features dominate Azerbaijan the Caspian Sea, whose shoreline forms a natural boundary to the east, the greater Caucasus mountain range that's to the north, the extensive flatlands at the country's center. The Hinola Valley, in particular, has come to be known for its striking beauty. The Caucasus Mountains are a high, rugged range that ends abruptly in the Caspian and the Black Sea shores. Azerbaijan On the Caspian end of this range has drastic elevation changes that allow its climate to range from chilly alpine at its peaks to subtropical at the coast, all in the space of the size of the U.S. state of South Carolina. Azerbaijan has long taken advantage of this climate diversity to grow its array of crops that today range from tobacco and cotton to vegetables and citrus fruits to grains and grapes there are 106 species of mammals, 97 species of fish, 363 species of birds, 10 species of amphibians, and 52 species of reptiles, which have all been recorded and classified in Azerbaijan. And that sounds like a really crowded country. Is there room for the people? So, Baku, Azerbaijan's capital, lies in its extreme east, filling the natural hook of the Abshoron Peninsula that spikes prominently into the Caspian. This shape makes Baku one of the Caspian's best natural ports. Azerbaijan has long drawn strategic military and economic advantage from this. Baku and its metropolitan area are home to over 2.3 million residents. Of course, with all those animals, I mean, they all got to live in the capital, right? So, one quarter of the country's population lives in that one city. Much of Azerbaijan's extensive oil and natural gas production is located on and around the peninsula with additional major points dotting the Kura River. Overall, Azerbaijan is a beautiful country with a lot of opportunities, but it's not without its underlying issues. Issues that started a long, long time ago. But before we get into that, let's start from the beginning. The earliest evidence of human settlement in the territory of Azerbaijan dates back to the late Stone Age. In fact, there's a complex cave system that is very important to prehistoric history. It's called Ozalk, and that cave and the Neanderthal fossils dating back to 300,000 years ago have been found there, as well as other evidence from man from the Middle Paleolithic era. But maybe that's starting a little bit too far back. So let's fast forward a little. The Azerbaijan people are descended from the Caucasus Albanians. The Albanians were, along with Armenia and Georgia, once a third great Christian kingdom located in the in the Caucasus. However, in the great clashes between the Romans, Persians, Arabs, and Turks, the Albanians, unlike the Armenians and Georgians, were submitted into other cultures. This was a long process that took several centuries. While some splinter groups of Albanians emerged into the Armenian and Georgian cultures, much of what had been Albania adopted Islam under the Arabs circa 700 to 800 AD. A Persian language under the Persians, which became known as Old Azirai by about 1100 and beginning in the 12th century, would become Azerbaijan Turks. When the Uglaza Turks began arriving in large numbers from Turkestan, Turkmenistan, excuse me, and on the other side of, which was on the other side of the Caspian, and they were part of the mongrel migrations. The same Uglaza Turks would settle as far west as the Antolan Peninsula founding the Turkic culture of modern-day Turkey. Through this evolution, the modern Azerbaijani language and culture which are Turkic emerged in the 16th century. In the early 16th century, the area of modern Azerbaijan was ruled by the So'afids which is a Persian dynasty that originated in a Shiite religious order known as safi Via, and it's name for its charismatic leader, Safi-Adin. safi Aden. safi Bavia was founded in Azerbaijan. Its leaders were Kurdish and Azerbaijani. Further, Azerbaijani was an important language of religion and culture throughout the empire, although Persians remained the dominant state language. The Sofafids made Shiite Islam their state religion and converted the Azerbaijanis and Iranians away from Sunnism which is still the dominant branch of Islam among the Azerbaijan neighbors. The Sofids eventually crumbled under external and internal pressures. The Ottomans and Uzbeks had long been foreign threats to the west and the east, and they were now joined by the Russians, who began pressing into the Persian possessions in the North Caucasus. In addition, The Dutch East India Company pressed Persia out of its traditional and lucrative trade routes to Africa and the Middle East. Ethnic and religious tensions were also at play as Safavid deportation of ethnic Georgians left parts of the Caucasus holdings depopulated, and Safavid attempts to forcibly convert Sunni Afghans eventually led the insurrection that led to the final destruction of the dynasty, in 1736. Although the empire was largely maintained under the uh, Afshar and Zan-Persian dynasties, these were both very short-lived, and the northern territories, including the territory of modern-day Azerbaijan, came to be de facto ruled by increasingly independent Turk Khanates, or uh, tribes. The Jars then came to power in Persia in 1789. The Qajars were an Azerbaijani people that had played a central role under the Safavids. They raised the importance of Azerbaijani language and culture within their new government and seemed poised to consolidate and strengthen the country. However, present day Azerbaijan was annexed away from the Qajars by the Russians in 1813 through 1828, shortly after the Qajars came to power. The Qajars themselves fell in 1925 under the pressure from old enemies and from political divisions that formed as the government tried to reform and rebuild its institutions to function in a more modern international world. Man, these guys were just busy, I know. As the local... Khanates began exercising more sovereignty, the Georgian kingdoms of kartli Kahiti and Emir which at the time covered most of the Central Caucasus, declared independence from Persia and became Russian proctorates in seventeen eighty three. The Qajars, however, were set upon um, they were set to rebuild the empire and resubjugated the Georgians in a bloody battle in 1795. Russia wanted to maintain influence in the region, however, which they saw as a strategic launching pad from which to attack and defend against the Ottomans and the Persians. Thus, in the early 1800s, a series of conflicts broke out between Russia and Persia. Russia, largely through better armaments and tactics, defeated the Persians in almost every battle, and by 1828, the Russians came to dominate nearly all of the northern and southern Caucasus. The Tsar allowed the Khanates in Azerbaijan a considerable deal of autonomy until the 1870s, when Azerbaijan's massive oil reserves were developed. Baku... Where most of these reserves are saw its population grow rapidly from 10,000 to about 250,000 as immigrants flocked to the city to work in the refineries and the transit facilities. Western tycoons such as the Rothschilds and Nobels were invited to use Azerbaijan as a proving ground for their latest oil technologies. Baku became the terminus of the world's first oil pipeline. The Nobel family ordered construction of the Zoroaster, the world's first oil tanker, to carry black gold from Azerbaijan's rich wells. The Transcoxis Railroad was begun in 1865 in Poti on the Black Sea and reached Baku in 1883. The rails ensured that Russian troops could move swiftly through the rugged mountains should they need to defend against external or internal threats. The railroad also allowed Russia to develop the Caucasus regions economically and became another important route for transporting Baku's oil west. This rapid development created massive disparities between the mainly Christian, European rulers and tycoons, and the mainly Muslim populace. The radical political movements of the early 20th century swept the new impoverished urban centers. The Tsarist government, to redirect aggression away from Russia, stepped up efforts to play various groups against one another, particularly Muslim Azerbaijanis and Christian Armenians, who both claimed that the other had oppressed them in their long and intertwined histories. And that's certainly the truth if you can glean anything from what I've said. Thus, the revolutions of 1905 and 1917 saw the Azeri and the Armenians fighting the Russians, the capitalists, and themselves. With the Russian Civil War, Armenia and Azerbaijan briefly became independent and immediately went to war with each other over disputed territory including Karabakh and Nakavan. Because both peoples had lived under larger empires for centuries, There was no clear borders between their communities. Some claims were based on uniting ethnic enclaves, while some were purely historical based on past borders of empires and kingdoms. The fighting only ended when, in 1920, the Soviets invaded and brought both Azerbaijani and Armenian under Soviet control. Azerbaijan was originally grouped with Armenia and Georgia in the transcoxas SFSR. This was broken into three pieces after it rapidly became clear that the three groups could not work together. Azerbaijan was initially a strategically important part of the USSR, providing 60% of the country's oil production. Azerbaijan received heavy capital investments from the Soviet government to develop new fields and support agriculture. For a time, Azerbaijan was also the USSR's top tea producer. Even today, there's still a large tea culture in Baku, and the fighting in World War II never reached Azerbaijan. But its strategic energy importance meant that Nazi prioritized taking the Republic as much as to cut off the Soviets' ability to fight as to fuel Germans' own war effort. The Nazis were stopped, at Stalingrad where mankind's bloodiest single battle in history was fought. I think that we will probably cover something uh, on, on that later and in large part this battle was over the oil in Azerbaijan. In 1941 at the start of the hostilities the USSR invaded northern Iran where the Azerbaijanis had held an ethnic majority since Persian times. This gave rise to the possibility that the two populations of Azerbaijanis might be united within a single border for the first time since the Russian-Persian Wars of the 1800s. However, soon after the war ended, the USSR was pressured by other allies to abandon the Iranian territory. The episode boosted Azerbaijani nationalism both inside and outside the USSR, By the 1960s, most of Azerbaijan's developed oil fields had dried up and although it was known that the Caspian still held considerable reserves, the USSR prioritized developing the Siberian fields in part because onshore drilling was cheaper and because Azerbaijan at the edge of the USSR was considered strategically more valuable. As the region's economy slowed, nationalism and ethnic tensions between Azerbaijanis and Armenians grew. The USSR tried to appease the Azerbaijanis by promoting Hade Aliva, a native Azerbaijani, to head of the region and even gave him a seat on the political Politburo, making him arguably the most politically powerful Azerbaijani in the history of either the USSR or Tsarist Russia. Aliyev was given a mandate to support alternative industries in Azerbaijan and gained success both politically and economically by pushing production of cotton. However, this came at an ecological cost as irrigation and planting negatively affected the soil. The 1980s in glasnost Brought more economic problems to Azerbaijan as the Soviet economy and political system crumbled. Hadi Aliyev initially resisted the reforms and was forced out of politics by the Gorbachev administration. As economic problems mounted, so did ethnic tensions. As Armenian, as Armenia pushed back to give a no brok an Armenian-majority region in Azerbaijan. Moscow's indecisive action helped lead more Azerbaijanis into opposition as tensions over Agro-Aknobrak escalated into physical confrontations, riots, and after both Azerbaijan and Armenia declared their own independence through war. The Agro-Aknobrak, war lasted six years. Azerbaijan's military was ill-prepared, having more soldiers but less equipment and fewer trained officers than Armenia. By 1994, Azerbaijan had lost control of akhno and an additional 10% of their territory. The ceasefire declared that year, the Bushkek Protocol, gave Azerbaijan's sovereignty over the area but also wide autonomy to the disputed territories however the protocol was never fully implemented and agro-akno-brok had de- declared itself autonomous republic although it is unrecognized by the international community hmm. i don't think that's the first time we've heard that uh, didn't the mormons go through something like that Thus, the conflict war was frozen in 1994, and although the OSCE Misnik Group was created to find an amicable solution to the lingering conflict, no long-term solution has been found. Agro-Aknobarakh continues to have major implications for Azerbaijan. Internally, the war left close to 10% of the population displaced, many living in small huts and railroad cars, unable to return to their homes. With war and rising nationalism, the Azerbaijan's early years of independence, most of its minorities, which once included Russians and Armenians, numbering about half a million each, left the country. Today, Azerbaijan is 92% ethnically Abrahianic. Wow. Azerbaijan's first president, the former Soviet leader, Ayazmut Ilibov, was voted out of office in 1992 in large part by an electorate unhappy with the results of the war. He was replaced by Abba Fais Lashabe, a former Soviet dissident and a pro-Western economic liberal. However, claiming mismanagement and corruption in the continued efforts to secure grok akno Brok, the Abishjani military eventually turned on Lashabre and displaced him in a coup, bringing back former Soviet leader Hade Ali Av, who was at that time 70 years old. I think we can relate to that. Uh, we've had a couple of elderly um, statesmen running our country, right? Ayaz quickly consolidated power by first meeting popular demands. He froze the conflict by signing the Brushkek Accords, ending the fighting. He also signed the Contract of the Century with a consortium of 11 major international oil companies to develop the large offshore reserves Azerbaijan holds in the Caspian. Pipelines linking Azerbaijan with Russia, Georgia, and Turkey were built or refurbished in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Billions of dollars in new energy revenue followed to Baku, complemented with successful economic reforms and major privatization programs. I ask critics also point to the jailing of political rivals and the stifling of distance as other ways power has consolidated. Much of Azerbaijan's foreign policy has also been heavily influenced by a growing Nobrox conflict. Azerbaijan has also carefully balanced relations between Russia and the West to maximize support for the continued recognition. Recon, <laughs> wow, guys. Sometimes I can't speak English, even though I think I'm doing okay with this, this uh, Azerbaijani language here. So, again, Azerbaijan has also carefully balanced the relations between Russia and the West to maximize support for the continued recognition recognition recognition. Let's draw that word one more time of Nobrok as Azerbaijani territory. Today Azerbaijan and Iran have a strained relationship due to both countries having a concentration of Shiite Muslims at their borders in disputes over maritime territory. Azerbaijan's history and location has given it many advantages and many problems, as I'm sure you can easily see. Its strategic position on the hydrocarbon-rich Caspian between between Asia, Europe, and the Middle East are economic boons. Its turbulent history has given it a unique culture, but also security issues on and within its borders. Its current political system has made friends at home and abroad but also drawn criticisms for many of its strong-handed policies. Moving forward, there are many reasons to hope that Azerbaijan's future will be bright and many reasons to hope for continued improvement for the sake of the prosperity and freedom of the Azerbaijani people. Many of Azerbaijan's citizens take much pride in their mixed history and some of that history has carried forward to today, including their beliefs on death and life after we pass on. Here in America, we've had the same funeral practices for decades, the same traditions and customs that have stood the test of time, but that's nothing compared to the burial traditions in Azerbaijan. The country is about 90% Muslim, with Shia Islam being practiced by about 85% of that group. The belief in the afterlife is that death is the end of the body's physical time on earth, but the soul Will live on in heaven or hell Azerbaijan distinguishes itself from other islamic funerals in a few key ways when someone is dying the family does not leave them alone or grieve too much when that person does pass away they're laid facing south and a black cloth is laid over them to symbolize the mourning. they are washed and dressed before being taken to the burial site during the wake a mirror will be put on the chest as the Aberzi believe that mirrors can reflect the soul as well. Putting a mirror in front of the body will protect the spirit of the deceased. The burial will typically take place within the same day as the death, and they can be expensive and extravagant affairs. Some families try to save the money, while others will just go all out with chefs and waiters to cater the funeral. They also may set up tents outside if they need more space for their guests. Typical funeral food include tea, halva, sweets, palafs, and meat dishes. Muslims do not use coffins. Instead, the bodies are carried on a stretcher or in an open box made of wood. Men, brothers and fathers of the deceased, will carry the body. Women are never involved in a funeral and only allowed to visit the grave the following day. Prayer is said all the way to the burial site. The loved one is then buried facing toward Mecca, the holiest city in Islam. Funerals are also held on the third and seventh days after the loved one is passed on. These affairs are an open invitation to the community and anyone can invite themselves to enjoy the food and the drink. I mentioned that the drinks are usually tea, but the food ranges anywhere from alva, which is a toasted tree or the recipe for today's episode that I'm about to share with you. Katab, and it was fairly easy to make, and it was interesting to eat. And I'll tell you more after the recipe. So first you have to make a dough, and it's one cup of whole wheat flour, one cup of all-purpose flour, half a teaspoon of salt, and two tablespoons of oil. You'll also need some boiling water. Uh, three or four cups. I think I used right at four cups. So, boil your water in a pan. In another pan, combine the flours and the salt. Slowly add the boiling water and stir with a wooden spoon. Keep adding water until a solid mass forms. At this stage, cover the dough for a few minutes to cool down enough to handle. Actually, when this happened, I rolled it with my hands. It's very sticky and it'll get all over everything, but you'll incorporate it well. Now add the oil and knead that mixture into a soft dough. Sprinkle with a little warm water if you need to so it doesn't dry out. Then cover the dough and let it rest for about 30 minutes. After the resting period, divide the dough into 8 equal pieces. Dust each ball with enough flour and with a little bit of flour and roll it into a very thin circle. Place about 2 tablespoons of filling on each half of the rolled dough. And cover it with the other half now when it when we talk about fillings it can be just about anything you imagine for the filling I made two different versions one was chopped apples with apple spice and the other was sauteed onion ground beef green pepper salt and pepper very easy I'm not gonna go through how all you do is throw all this stuff in the pan and saute it seal the edges well and cook it on a hot cast iron or heavy pan Apply oil on both sides and cook until it's golden brown. Now, back to what this tastes like. It, it's interesting because it kind of looks like a hot pocket or something, uh, uh, something similar to that. But when you bite into it, that, that that dough, that that wheat flour, it gives it a different texture than what you would expect. It, it's a, it's kind of like. Having a New York style pizza folded over. Now I'm not saying a calzone here because it's not like a pizza dough. It's it's got a different texture and a different flavor. It's something definitely worth trying out. I'm Scott Parrish, your host, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode, which was researched and co-written by Nellie Grace. This show was made possible by listeners like you, and I'd like to give a special shout out to some very good friends and military vets Chris Fries, Darren Levi, John Stanley, Ron Perry, Eric Walquist, Ernie DeWitt, Todd Albano, and Uncle D. I'm really not sure I'd be here without your unwavering support. Thank you very much. Your support, all, all of your support, drives this show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure to drop us a like and a five star rating. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on the latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.